We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, the topic is the story of Joe Kennedy, the coach from Washington, who won a Supreme Court decision this week 6-3 in favor of religious freedom. The football coach prays after a game, silently, and they actually fired him for doing it. But he just prevailed. And we need to celebrate this as a victory for freedom of speech and freedom of religion. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. So as I said in the introduction, today's topic is this story coming out of the Supreme Court, which just ruled in favor of Coach Joe Kennedy, a football coach from the state of Washington, who would kneel in prayer silently after a football game and was fired for doing so by his school district. He fought all the way to the Supreme Court, and he just prevailed, 6-3. to three. I'm going to share that story with you and why this is good for all of us, whether you're Christian or not, why it is a victory for freedom of speech and freedom of religion, because you can't have freedom of speech without freedom of religion. They're inseparable. There's a reason this is the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. The freedom to worship as you will, where you will, how you will, without the government intruding into the business of the church. I'm going to talk again about this wall of separation between church and state. Is it constitutional or is it extra-constitutional? And what was the basis for Thomas Jefferson's citation of that wall? I'm going to talk about Judge Gorsuch and how he defended that wall of separation by referring back to the traditions, the history, the practice of implementing the Constitution and why history and tradition matter. Without citing it, and perhaps even without knowing it, Judge Gorsuch is referring to the quadrilateral. He's elevating not only the text, the revelation, the actual written law, He is elevating history and tradition and the interpretation and application of that in our daily lives. And he's saying that history, that tradition, the knowledge of what those who went before us thought about these particular words, that matters. And we should rule accordingly. This is a victory. This is a victory not only for Coach Kennedy. It's a victory for you and me, your sons and your daughters, your nieces and your nephews, your grandchildren, those that follow us just want a victory for freedom. The freedom to kneel in prayer silently without being persecuted for doing so. I'm going to share this story with you and more after we take this break. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. 
1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, so welcome back to the rebellion. So this story, this Supreme Court decision in favor of Coach Joe Kennedy, the football coach from the state of Washington, who had a practice of kneeling in silent prayer after every football game because it was uh, very simple, really, as to why he did this. He said he had a commitment to God to kneel and pray and thank him for victories and for losses and that he would do so after every game. So he would kneel in prayer privately individually, at the 50-yard line after every game. The game was over. The crowd is dispersing. And he's not inviting anyone to join him. So lest you go down this rabbit trail of, well, he's coercing students, you know, those under his charge, he's applying inappropriate pressure, religious pressure, uh, religious discrimination. He's putting, he's putting inappropriate pressure on his student-athletes to join him in prayer. That is not the case. He was doing it privately. Now, some of the students saw him doing it, and they would go join him, but that was totally, 100% their decision. They were not coerced. They were not told to do so. They were not penalized if they didn't do so. None of that is true. This was a private prayer, a silent prayer at the 50-yard line, and he was doing it individually. And then, yes, some students saw him and chose to join in individually of their own volition. Does that make sense? Well, he was fired for doing this, and this was several years ago. He's been fighting it in this, all the way to the Supreme Court, and they just ruled in his favor 6-3. The court upheld the right of this high school football coach to take a knee in quiet, personal prayer, at the 50-yard line. And I'm reading from the first Liberty Institute's report of this because they're the ones who defended him. Sidebar, if you want to give money to an organization that's doing good work, consider giving it to First Liberty Institute. Go Google that. Kelly Shackelford is the president of First Liberty, and he deserves your support. First Liberty, as well as the Beckett Fund and the Alliance Defending Freedom are three organizations that deserve your support because they're defending First Amendment rights, religious freedom, left and right, all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom represented me and Oklahoma Wesleyan when we sued uh, for the right to be pro-life, 
we were co-litigants with the Little Sisters of the Poor in that decision, all, or in that uh, lawsuit, all the way to the Supreme Court and the decision in our favor. Uh, we stood with the nuns, the Little Sisters, in saying, no, you can't force us to pay for abortifacient drugs in our health care because we're pro-life. Nuns, they're Catholic. They're pro-life by definition, and they're also celibate, so they shouldn't have to pay for any contraception in their health care package. They don't need contraception. They're celibate, and they're Catholics. And like Ted Cruz said, when you find yourself standing against a bunch of nuns and arguing with them in the Supreme Court about abortifacient drugs and their health care, you might want to consider you're on the wrong side of this particular debate. Absolutely. So Alliance Defending Freedom represented us, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, in that lawsuit. The Beckett Fund was representing the Little Sisters in that lawsuit. And then you've got First Liberty, who does similar work. And in this case, they were the attorneys. They were the law firm representing Coach Joe Kennedy. All right, so more from this story. And it's written up by First Liberty. That's where I'm getting my news on this right now. Uh, Okay, so affirming the right of all Americans to freely live out their faith. That's the headline that First Liberty is using. It says, the court held that Coach Kennedy's prayer was doubly protected by both the free exercise and the free speech clauses of the First Amendment. So this is a good thing. They're doubling down in defense of this in a 6-3 decision. In other words, Coach Kennedy has a constitutional right to pray. That's what this says. And I can't even believe that we're arguing about this, but indeed we are, and we all know that. This should be just self-evident. It shouldn't even be taking our time. Of course you have the right to pray. Silently? Anywhere. You can do it at the 50-yard line at the football game, or you can do it in front of your house, or you can do it out in front of the courthouse, on the courthouse steps. You have the right to pray in the United States of America. And there's no interpretation of our founding documents and the thoughts and the writing of our founding fathers that would imply otherwise. And that's the important part, in my view, about this decision. Judge Gorsuch, in citing the majority opinion, said this, The Constitution... And the best of our traditions, counsel, mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike, that the First Amendment doubly protects religious speech is no accident. It is a natural outgrowth of the framers' distrust of government attempts to regulate religion and suppress dissent. Close quote. That's what Gorsuch wrote in the majority opinion. Now, I want you to hear this again, because I think it's critical that he is citing traditions, more specifically his language, our best traditions and what they counsel with respect to what we're going to do in the public square. So back to his point, back to his quote. He says this in writing for the majority, the 6-3 majority, the Constitution and the best of our traditions. So he's lumping those together, the actual text, the words of the Constitution, as well as the traditions In other words, the history and the application of those words, of that constitutional text. Okay, the quote again. The Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike. That the First Amendment doubly protects religious speech is no accident, says the judge. It is a natural outgrowth of the framers' distrust of government attempts to regulate religion and suppress dissent, close quote. So he's being very clear here. In fact, there's no equivocation. There's no wiggle room in what he's saying. 
He's saying that the government cannot censor, suppress, or dictate private religious expression. Government punishing someone for living out their faith runs afoul of our nation's founding principles. And the decision correctly points out that the Constitution neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. That's a quote from the majority decision. Do you get that? Our Constitution, the letter of the law, the literal letter of the law, what our law is on paper, neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. The government needs to stay out of our religious lives, is what the judge is saying. And that we can't use this ruse of separation of church and state to allow the government to intrude into our religious lives, intrude into the church, if you will, and start telling us what we can and cannot do. Now you may say, well, he wasn't doing it in the church. He wasn't in the church when he prayed. Well, if that's your rebuttal, then you have a misunderstanding and a misconception as to what the definition of the church really is. The New Testament definition of church is not a building with four walls. The definition of the church is the body of Christ. There's no distinction between public life and private life when it comes to the definition of what it means to be a part of that body, that body of Christ, that thing that's called the church. The church is this universal collection of believers that exercise their faith both in private as well as in public. There's no bifurcation, there's no dichotomy between private and public life when it comes to the church. It's a universal whole. It's an integrated way of living. It's not a segregated, bifurcated, divisive, or divided uh, life. It's not, well, I'm religious in private, but I can't be religious in public. I, I'm Christian in my private prayers, but I can't be Christian when I start going about my daily duties and my job. No, there was never any intent in our Constitution or in our traditions as described by our founding fathers and the framers of our Constitution. They did not intend that. I'm going to prove it to you here in a second. So the bottom line is this is a great victory for religious freedom. And whether you're Buddhist or Baptist, you should be celebrating this. Whether you're Anglican or agnostic, this is a good thing, because it essentially says the government shouldn't have anything to say about what your beliefs are or aren't and should not be suppressing them nor coercing them. You can't dictate it, and you can't suppress it. It's not the government's business to use Justice Gorsuch's language. Does that make sense? So with that as the foundation for the rest of the show, let's talk about those traditions and the counsel that those traditions, the words and the wisdom of the Founding Fathers, the Framers, in addition to the Constitution that they actually handed on to us, what did they say about it at the time of its writing? as an explanation to the citizens of the United States as to what this Constitution actually meant. That's important because context is king. And the extra-constitutional language of these Founding Fathers is important because that provides the context, the explanation, the definition, if you will, of the Constitution and why it was important and what it was supposed to do in application in our public and private lives. Well, here's one statement from Thomas Jefferson. He said, It is self-evident that all men are created equal, and all are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Why is that important? You've heard that a thousand times over. We are created equal. It's self-evident. That implies a creator. And what's the word creator mean? 
In the words of Thomas Jefferson, God. It's not the government that makes us equal. The government doesn't endow us with anything. Our creator, God himself, is the source of our unalienable rights. The government is to stop people from taking those rights away. The government isn't supposed to create, dictate, or coerce anything with regard to those rights and the liberties that we enjoy. In other words, our liberty does not spring from the government. Our freedom is given to us by God. Our Creator give us, gives us those unalienable rights of life and liberty and the right to pursue happiness, purpose, as opposed to haplessness. Here's another quote. This is from George Washington. May the same wonder-working deity, well, who's that? God, okay. <laughs> Jefferson says creator. Washington says deity. Capital letters, by the way. Capital D, capital C. Okay, back to Washington. May the same wonder-working deity who long since delivering the Hebrews from their Egyptian oppressors and planted them in the Promised Land, whose providential agency, again capitalized, has lately been conspicuous in establishing these United States as an independent nation, still continue to water them with the dews of heaven and to make the inhabitants of every denomination participate in the temporal and spiritual blessings of that people whose God is Jehovah. Close quote. Do you think that's a religious statement? Do you think that's a Christian statement? Is that a statement that says God delivered the Jews from Egypt and he has also delivered the United States from the oppression of Great Britain? And may he still continue to water our nation with the dews of heaven and make the inhabitants of every denomination participate in the temporal and spiritual blessings of that people whose God is Jehovah. That's George Washington. Again, these are statements that are of the tradition of the founding fathers and the framers. This is the counsel that they were bringing to bear as they explained their reasoning for the Constitution and what they intended it to be. Okay, here's another one from John Jay, president of the Continental Congress. The Bible is the best of all books, for it is the Word of God and teaches us that the way to be happy in this world and the next. So he's elevated the Bible as the context for the Constitution and for our constitutional republic. Here's another one from James McHenry, signer of the Constitution. The Holy Scriptures can alone secure to society order and peace and to the courts of justice and our constitutions of government, purity and stability. So he's saying, James McHenry is saying, when he signed the Constitution, that the context for the Constitution was the Holy Scriptures because they alone can secure to society, order and peace, and to our courts, like the Supreme Court, justice, and our constitutions of government, in other words, the federal government, as well as your state government and local government. It's the Holy Scriptures that provide the foundation for purity and stability. And that's from a signer of the Constitution, James McHenry. Again, these are the traditions, and this is the council that the framers left for us so that we could understand better how to apply the Constitution and its text to our daily lives. Here's one later on from Teddy Roosevelt. The teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure to ourselves what life would be if these teachings were removed. We should lose almost all the standards by which we now judge both public and private morals. Almost every man who has added to the sum of human achievement of which this human race is proud and has based its life upon 
has largely been grounded in the teachings of the Bible. That's Teddy Roosevelt. And again, he's saying that we should lose almost all the standards by which we now judge both public and private life if we don't acknowledge that all of those standards that we use to judge both public and private morals are grounded in the teachings of the Bible. They're so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure to ourselves what life would be like if we remove these teachings from our daily civic life. Okay, And then here's another one, and I've cited this over and over again on this show. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That's John Adams. You can't have a Constitution without a moral and religious people. It will be meaningless. It will be inadequate to the government of anything, whether it be you or me, whether it be local government or whether it be federal government. Our Constitution doesn't work. That's what he's saying. If it is not rooted deeply in a moral and religious people. And where does the morality come from? How is it that people are religious in both public and private life? The Bible. All right, here's Benjamin Franklin. And some people say that Jefferson and Franklin were deists and they weren't Christian. I don't know, but I do know what they're saying. We can just read it. Here's what Franklin says. I have so much faith in the general government of the world by providence, capital P, he's saying by God, by providence that I can hardly conceive a transaction of such momentous importance to the welfare of millions now existing and to exist in the posterity of a great nation should be suffered to pass without being in some degree influenced, guided, and governed by that omnipotent, omnipresent, and beneficent ruler. So he is explicitly saying that the very seeds of our constitutional republic are grounded in the guidance, the governing hand of an omnipotent, omnipresent, and beneficent ruler. And again, he capitalizes R in ruler. So here we have again a reference to the God of the Bible as the context for our constitutional republic. Here's another one, Benjamin Rush. Rush, excuse me, uh, Benjamin Rush. I am perfectly satisfied that the union of the states in its form and adoption is as much the work of divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament were the effects of divine power. Tis done. We have become a nation, close quote. You hear what he's saying? That the union of the states, the birth of the United States of America, and the adoption of our Constitution and our way of living and our law, the fences for our freedom, if you will. He's saying that it is as much a work of divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament were, the, the effects of divine power. And then he says, "'Tis done, we have become a nation." He's giving glory to God in that expression. Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson said this, "'America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture.'" And then we'll go back to Jefferson, if this stuff isn't good enough for you. It, 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 "'No nation,' he said, "'has ever yet existed or been governed without religion, nor can be. The Christian religion is the best religion that has been given to man, and I, as chief magistrate of this nation, am bound to give it sanction. Does that sound like Jefferson thinks Christianity, and praying at the 50-yard line at a football game, should be outlawed? How in the world could you possibly draw the conclusion that Jefferson believed the wall of separation between church and state should keep uh, people like Coach Kennedy from doing what he was doing? When you read that quote... And, and put our Constitution in the context of that 
tradition and the counsel that that tradition gives us as to the application of the Constitution and this new nation called the United States of America. I'm going to read that quote again. It is an important one. No nation has ever yet existed or been governed without religion, nor can be. The Christian religion is the best religion that has been given to man. And I, as chief magistrate, president of the United States, chief magistrate of this nation, am bound to give it, what's it? Christianity, sanction. Jefferson never would have told, never would have told anyone that the Constitution would prohibit what someone like Coach Kennedy from simply praying silently at the 50-yard line at a community football game, all right? So does religion have a place in politics? Well, absolutely. How could you declare otherwise? So in the, in the rest of the show, let's talk about this separation of church and state, because that's what uh, our progressive opponents, the, the, the people who want to stop Joe Kennedy from doing what he was doing, the only thing that they have is this argument that there's a separation between church and state, and that if you're doing it on state property or on state time, if you're doing it in the public square like on the courthouse lawn, you can't do it because the Constitution says that there's a separation between church and state, this wall of separation argument. Is that in our Constitution or, a de- or our Declaration of Independence? No, and you know that, so I won't belabor it. It's not there. That language comes from the traditions the, and the counsel that those traditions give us. So it's part of the context of the application of our constitutional rights. It's part of the, it's part of the history as to why we have a constitution and why the First Amendment exists in the first place. So yeah, we should talk about the separation of church and state and this wall of separation because it is extra constitutional, as are these other statements that I just read. So where did it come from? Well, you know, in... 1776, Jefferson set the cornerstone of our constitutional republic by carving out the Declaration of Independence. And you know what that declaration declared. We are created, we are equal, and we're endowed by God, not government, with certain specified, incontrovertible, indisputable, unalienable rights. That's the declaration. That's part of the context and the tradition and the council that leads to the Constitution. So what happened later? Well, in 1791, James Madison wrote the First Amendment. So it's springing out of the soil of the Constitution, as well as the writings, the expressions, the traditions, and the council of his fellow framers. James Madison comes along in 1791, and he writes the First Amendment. What does it say? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free expression thereof. Pretty simple. The government shouldn't establish a state religion, nor should it prohibit the free expression of any religion. It just, that's it. That's what it says. So Madison knew that the essential and first right of mankind was to pursue meaning and happiness purpose. And he knew that this was the business of the church and not that of the king or the courts. It wasn't the government's business. Congress was to be the protector of the first thing, religious freedom and freedom of expression. Congress wasn't the progenitor of it. It wasn't the source of that first thing. It was merely the protector. So 
Madison's argument was quite clear, and it is really very simple. The federal government should never presume to define the matters of the church. It should never pretend to establish, dictate, define, contradict, or contravene religious belief. This is not the government's business. Okay? This, this is the responsibility of the church. It's the responsibility and the right of the American people. And, and furthermore, and just as important, the government should never presume to prohibit any citizen's free expression of their faith. In other words, religion is not merely some secondary matter relegated to your private life. It's a public priority and a personal values and a corporate expression of your morals. And it's something that all faithful people do. That's how we live out our faith on a daily basis in the market square of life. It's not the government's business. That's what Madison was saying. And Congress should leave the church alone. Congress, the government, should never presume to tell people what to believe or how to or how not to practice their beliefs and their faith. Now, 11 years later, after that, Jefferson comes along and he finds it necessary. Okay, so we've got all of this history and tradition, this counsel from the framers that leads up to this point. You've got a bunch of nervous Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, who are worried that the government is going to overreach and it's going to start intruding into the lives of this Baptist church. And that's when Jefferson establishes this wall language. That's when he says, uh, you've got a wall of separation between church and state. So his message was unmistakable. He's saying that there's a wall protecting the church from the state, not the state from the church. No government should ever presume to breach that wall. The wall isn't erected as a prison, but rather as a fortress. It doesn't imprison the church. It's a fortress to protect the church from an overbearing government and king and Congress. Does that make sense? So there's a door in the wall, but the church holds the key. You can leave the confines of the wall by using the key to the door, go out and do your good work, pray at the 50-yard line or wherever else you want, and then go back to within the wall that protects you from government intrusion and overreach, and you can lock the door. That's the wall of separation, and that wall is the exact opposite of what the left is pretending it is today. So praise the Lord for Judge Gorsuch and the majority who just voted to honor your freedoms. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.